Thank you, Greta. Actually, a special thank you to all of our musicians this morning. A lot of hard work and effort went into planning the service this morning. And Pastor West probably won't tell you this, but just between us, you don't have to tell him I said this, but he traveled all night to get back for the service this morning. So he's been up all night, literally. So I think we can forgive him for uh, missing a cue there. You're okay. <laughs> I'm trying to make an excuse for you. Uh, if you're a guest this morning, we want to especially welcome you. Uh, we thank you for joining us today. And uh, there is in front of you, there's a card. On that card, there's a QR code. It looks like the one on the screen behind me. And if you could be so kind as to scan that with your phone, it'll take you to a place where tell us a little bit about yourself, give us some contact information just so we can follow up with you. We would like to get to know you a little bit better. And by the way, if you are a returning guest and you are interested in more information about our church or you are a long-term member and there's an area that you would like to get information about or you would like to get involved in, you can use this exact same QR code and you can also contact us through that as well and that will give you an opportunity to get to know, uh, get so we can know what where you may be interested and where we can help you. You know, I got up this morning as I typically do and walked out. I typically get up every morning. I think most of us did this morning. Pastor West didn't because he's been up since yesterday sometime. But I got up, went through my morning routine, and then I got ready to come here to the church. I'm usually here pretty early on Sundays. And I walked outside, and it kind of looked apocalyptic outside. The sun kind of had this weird glow over the sky, and it was a very strange sort of morning. And I walked out and I thought to myself, what a beautiful Palm Sunday. Isn't that what it feels like? It feels a whole lot more like the Easter season than it does the Christmas season. The beauty of that, I guess the positive of that, maybe you're like us, we've had opportunity to be outdoors a little bit more often. And recently we were out as a family walking at the park near our house and we were talking and walking, and I don't remember what we were talking about, but I said something very profound, and I wanted to share it with you this morning. I said this. I said, you know what? I am not a control freak until I am. There's aspects of my life that I want absolute control over. How about you? Is that true about you? For me, I particularly don't like my routine to be broken, I don't particularly like the things that I have planned to be disrupted. And I was listening to Pastor Brian's story. I had forgotten this. I'm getting old, I guess. I had totally forgotten this. When I was a kid, we absolutely had a train. And I remember as a kid, not only did we have a train that my mother put me in charge of setting up this train. We had one that smoke came out of it and the whole deal. And it got to the place where my little creative mind, I guess, I had an entire city that I would set up, these little houses, they lit up and everything, not with like real fire or anything like that, but they had candles in the window and the train would go around the track. But everything had to be in their exact place. They had to be done as I determined they ought to be done. And I think if we're honest, we all have a desire to be in control. We all have a desire at some level to be the one who manages everything the way that we would like for it to go. And when it comes to God's plan for this world, most of us would like to be on the planning committee. We really wish that God would consult us before God does what God is going to do. 
And yet, as I read through Scripture, particularly through the Christmas story, I am reminded of a very simple truth. God's people are not part of the planning committee. We are part of the welcoming committee. That our job is not to plot out and plan the world the way we believe it ought to be, the way it ought to look, the way it ought to feel, the existence that we all believe should happen. Instead, when you look at the people involved in the Christmas story, they did not plan it, but they welcomed it. They were there to welcome the Messiah into the world. They were a part of God's plan, not on the planning side, but as those who were welcoming the Lord Jesus Christ when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If I was controlling the world, it would snow everywhere, every Christmas day and only on Christmas day. That's my version of perfect Christmas. We all have a version of perfect, but the reality is God's not interested in our version of perfect. He's interested in his And his is absolutely, eternally perfect. I want you to join me just for a few moments this morning in Luke chapter 2. We're going to read a few verses of scripture. And this is going to be kind of a fast-paced sermon. Our time is very short this morning. And I understand that. It's going to be very fast-paced. I'm going to give you a bunch of verses very quickly. And I'm going to assume some familiarity with the Christmas story. With Luke chapter 2 and other places. Matthew and other places where we find different aspects of the Christmas story, but I want to read just a few verses to kind of get our minds flowing a little bit and looking at this account that we are all so familiar with as we think about the idea of God's people being the welcoming committee of the Son of God as he entered into this world. Notice verse 8, and and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel of the Lord said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, and you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. We have been talking about, I've referenced this verse of scripture over the last couple of weeks, but Genesis 3.15, which takes place shortly after the fall of mankind, we find in that verse what we call the Proto-Evangelium. In which it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This promise of a coming redeemer, this promise of a coming Messiah. And ever since this moment in history, after the fall, it was moving toward the birth of Christ. And so as I want to look at the Christmas story, again, I'm going to assume you're familiar with the text. We are going to come at this as we would in an English class in some degree, it's to some degree. We are first of all going to consider the infamous question in a literature class, who? Who is the Christmas story about? Yes, there's lots of characters, if you will, and by characters I mean real people, not characters in the fiction sense, but who is this story about? Well, it is about a Messiah. It is about the one that was promised 
by God. In Matthew chapter 1, you don't need to turn there, but we find these words. Now, the birth of Christ Jesus took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her or to put her away quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of man, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. I was thinking about that one little phrase that we probably have read so often for so many years, that when the angel says you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, you're going to have a baby and this is what the name of the child is going to be. It's going to be Jesus. I remember when our three, actually four kids were born, I can remember going through the task of picking a name for that child because you wanted it to be something that was meaningful to the family you wanted it to be meaningful meaningful to us and you think about mary and joseph being told you don't get to pick the child's name because god has already picked the name for him he is going to be called jesus now what was so important about this child well he was the messiah In John chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, we find these words. It says, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? It's talking about John the Baptist. Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And we come to John chapter 4. We have an occasion in which Jesus is speaking with the proverbial, we call her the woman at the well. And Jesus is speaking to this woman. And the woman said this. She said, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. Just then his disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, who do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who has told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Can this be the Messiah? See, very often when we hear people say, Jesus Christ in that order, oftentimes a lot of people view Christ as his kind of last name, but that's not the term. The term is Christos. It comes from the Greek word Christos. It means the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God. This is the Christ. Very often, I I grew up hearing this, and maybe you've heard this too, is when you see people abbreviate Christmas Xmas and people for a long time said, well, we don't take Christ out of Christmas. You know, in Greek, the word Christos begins with an X. That became over time a shorthand, the X standing for Christ. 
And here, when John, in the book of John, when this woman says, I know that the Messiah is coming, and notice that Jesus says to this woman, I am him. I am the one that the entire Old Testament has pointing toward this coming Messiah that would be born. And Jesus said, it is I. Now, when we come to the end of the life of Christ, we fast forward many years And we find in Mark chapter 14, verses 61 through 64, and again the high priest asked him, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, what further witness do you need? Now, why would he say that question? Why would this high priest have this reaction when Jesus answered the question, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed one? And when Jesus said, I am him and I will come with power in the clouds of heaven, the priest tore his clothes. What further witness do we need? You have heard, he said, this is blasphemy. He was claiming to be God. He's not just any babe. He's not just any child. He is the Messiah, the promised one, that John would later say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Christmas story, yes, it's about Mary. Yes, it's about Joseph. Yes, it's about the shepherds. And in our conflation of the text, we often conflate the wise men who came at some period of time later in our manger scenes and and we see them. Yes, it's about them too, but it's about the Messiah. It is about the Christ. And we know that because of his claim to be the Christ, to be the Messiah, they crucified him. So we have the who... The next question is, well, what? What is the Messiah? What was this all about? He was going to be and is a shepherd king. We don't have a lot of time to to talk about this one. Let me just briefly mention Micah chapter 5, verse 4. Micah is an Old Testament book, um, Old Testament prophet. And it said this, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. The shepherd. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 17, we find these words, For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, and he will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Like David, who was a shepherd king, the man after God's own heart, Jesus was a shepherd king as well. But in the sense of being God's only son, that he would shepherd his people He would be the king of kings and lord of lords, as Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Well, there's also another important aspect to this account, and that is the where. Micah, again, chapter 5, again, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, you shall come forth 
for me, one who is the ruler, to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days, the prediction of the place in which Jesus would be born, this town of Bethlehem in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It is then referenced in Matthew 2, verse 6, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The next question in our literary trail here is, well, when? We know that based on Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, we find this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Jesus was born at the perfect time. The time in which God ordained he would be born. There might have been a more convenient time. Maybe the magi or the, the wise men. Maybe their travel plans. It could have been convenient if they had to travel at a different time. It might have been more convenient for those that were involved in the account and in the story. And yet, as Paul says, Jesus was born in the fullness of time exactly when God deemed it to be so. How was he born? To a virgin. Isaiah chapter 7, written hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Quoted in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. In Luke chapter 1, we find the angel speaking to Mary and he, she, and he says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign in the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how would this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you, therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now very often we use vocabulary that is familiar with us, and we use words that we understand the meaning, but often we're speaking to some people, they're using a different dictionary. And when we say Son of God, we are talking about more than an offspring. We are talking about Son of God as in of the same essence as God. He was the Son of God, the one and only monogenes, unique Son of God. I leave you this morning with the final question, and that is the very most pointed and arguably the most important question is, why? Why was the Messiah born? Why did it have to be to a virgin? Well, as Isaiah said, it was this clear sign, this pointing to the one that this was him but what is the point of the messiah isaiah 53 i won't read it for sake of time but talks about this coming messiah that he would be bearing our sorrows he would be crushed for our iniquities because all we like sheep have gone astray we have all turned aside and that is why that statement in Luke chapter 2 is so important. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
So why was the Messiah born? He was born because we, as sinful men, are in desperate need of a Redeemer. Someone who would lay down his life for our sin. As Paul writes in the book of Galatians chapter 3, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So the Apostle Paul making it very clear that salvation is never by the works of the law. It could never be accomplished by the works of the law that we needed a Redeemer. I've heard this and you've heard this. We've all heard this a time or two in our lives is that salvation in the Old Testament was accomplished by works and the New Testament salvation is accomplished through faith. That is categorically incorrect. Salvation has always been by faith. The point of the law was not to redeem anyone, to save anyone. It was to point believers and point people, sinful people, to the point that they could not save themselves. It was impossible to keep the law to perfection. That pointed to their need and our need of a Savior. As it says in the New Testament, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. It is by faith, not the works of the law. I always find it interesting when I get into discussions of people about saved by faith or works or the topic of losing your salvation. I always point people to the man named Lot in the Old Testament. He would be one that it would be hard-pressed to argue that he kept the law perfectly. That would be a very difficult argument to make. And yet in the New Testament, he's called righteous. How can that be? Read through Hebrews where the hall of faith, as it's famously known. Read some of the names that are found in that list. Jephthah, really? And we look at some of these names that are put down for us in the New Testament that they are called righteous. Clearly their righteousness was based on something other than their works. It was based on their faith. This isn't a license to sin. That's certainly not the argument that the New Testament is making. But it is an argument that it is by faith we are saved, not by our works of righteousness. Because if it was by your works of righteousness, you'd be arrogant and proud and you would be condescending because you would achieve salvation through your own works. It's never through our own works. In conclusion... Let me remind all of us this Christmas season that God has a specific plan for this world. He didn't consult me, he didn't consult you, and he won't. Because it's his plan. And the magnificence of the birth of Christ is now demonstrated how God has orchestrated events to accomplish his glorious redemptive plan in the fullness of time. At God's perfect time in history. Not only does God have a specific plan, but he also has a specific savior for the world. At the right time, the Messiah, 
was born. At the right time, he was crucified on the cross of Calvary, fulfilling the requirements of the law that made our redemption possible. Apart from the birth, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we would be living under the requirements of the law. And yet, as the redeemed in the New Testament age, we are now adopted into the family of God. It is part of his plan to send his son to die on the cross of Calvary for our sins so that we can enjoy him forever. I was telling my connect group this morning that I woke up today and understand, I, I get Christmas season, I understand, you know, all that goes with it, but I... I worry about the pace of the season. We rush from one event to the next. This party, this party, this program, this, 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 this. And I was thinking this morning, as I was praying for this today and just praying over the message and that sort of thing, I was just praying for my own heart, my own family. Lord, slow us down. Slow us down so that we will really, not just in a trite way, I'll remember, keep Jesus in the season. That's great, true, sure. But do we live that? Do we, remember, do we remember that Christmas is a reminder of God's perfect plan for this world? Do we take time to dwell on the fact and meditate on the fact that apart from Christmas, apart from Easter, that I would be lost for all of eternity with no hope? One day, it wasn't this morning, I walked outside hoping it was today that Jesus was coming back because the sky looked pretty ready. One day he's coming again. Joy to the world. It's not even a Christmas song, but we sing it at Christmas time. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. And he's coming again. And my question for you is this, will you be part of the welcoming committee? Will you be there, heart ready, life obedient, looking and expecting the Lord Jesus Christ to return and that when he returns, you will be along with the angels of heaven singing glory to God, there's my savior. Are you ready for that? As a Christian, are you ready today? It wasn't this morning. I wish it had been, but it wasn't. But it could be today. It could be tomorrow. Are you ready? I didn't ask you if you're saved. If you're saved, you are, in a sense, ready. But are you living in accordance to God's plan and God's word? Are you living in obedience to your Savior so that when he comes, you're prepared? But in closing, maybe you are here this morning and you're not sure you're ready for that and maybe you've always believed that's kind of a fairy tale. And yet by multiple accounts, we have ample records to demonstrate that not only was Jesus who he said he was, but that people laid down their lives for believing he was the Messiah. There has never been a tomb found of Jesus Christ because there isn't one to be found. Oh, there's, it's there, it's just empty. And he promised 
to come again. And if you're here this morning and you are trusting in your good works, you're trusting in your parents' religion, you're trusting in giving money, you're trusting in whatever you believe is enough to get you to heaven. My dear friend, whatever works you're resting in, I don't know what they are, I don't know how long the list is, but I make you this promise. They will never get you to heaven. Never. There's one way, and it's through the Messiah. The one born at Christmas, crucified and resurrected for you and for me. This Christmas season and all the busyness, as a Christian, slow down and remember if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, I urge you to slow down and believe. By faith are you saved, not through your works of righteousness, but only through faith in Christ and in him alone. Pray with me. Father, I thank you this morning for this opportunity to look at a very familiar topic, very familiar text to most of us. And yet we so often in our familiarity with the story, Lord, that we often neglect to remember what this really means. It really means that you love the world enough to send your son of your very essence to come into this world, to live in this world, to be rejected by this world, and ultimately to be crucified because you love us. And it is by faith that we can be saved through your grace and through your mercy. Lord, our ministry, we do what we do to make and mature disciples for your glory. And Lord, maybe there is someone here this morning that is not sure about their salvation. They've never come to the place that they have believed. I pray, God, that even in the quietness of this moment, perhaps they would seek help, seek counsel of how they can become a Christian. And Lord, maybe there's a believer here this morning that their lives right now, it is so far away from what your word is asking of them that they know right now what they need more than anything is repentance and to return back to what they know to be true. And so God, I pray that as we close our service here in just a moment, that you would work in our hearts. Thank you for the quietness of this moment that we can just reflect and think and meditate and Lord, maybe there are some here today that need to respond in a very specific way. And if that's true, Lord, I pray that you'd make that clear. Bless now again the closing moments of our time together this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask Pastor West and Scott to come lead us in a closing song. I'll stay here at the front. If you have questions about salvation, I would love to talk with you. If you have something else you would like to talk about, I'll be available after the service down here near the front. And so Pastor West, Scott, come lead us today in a closing song. Let's just take the opportunity to just close our service today by telling the Lord that we love him and giving him thanks for all that he's done and all that we celebrate at this Christmas season. Let's stand as we sing. We don't have words, but I think you know that little chorus. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. Let's sing it together.
Let's sing it once without the piano. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, O my soul, rejoice, take joy, my King, in what you hear, may it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Amen. Thank you for being with us this morning. You are dismissed. Have a great week.